We're so very happy to have him here in Los Angeles. Please welcome Mark Sundin. Hey, uh, thank you all for being here. And thanks, Noel. Thanks, Skywhite. This store has been so great to me for many years. I think maybe at least three of them, or maybe even four of my books I've come here to read. So it's always great to be back. And as you may or may not know, I am from L.A. originally, or at least from the suburbs here of in Manhattan Beach and Hermosa Beach. So it's always great to pass back through here. Um, this book, The Unsettlers, this is uh, just fresh off the presses. Um, came out a month ago, three weeks ago. And I'm going to talk about it for maybe 10 minutes, and then I'm going to read from it for maybe 15 minutes at the most, and then I would love to have questions and have a discussion. I figure by the fact that you're here, you might already have some interest in uh, alternatives, alternative ways of living and resisting. So this book began from probably a point of pure despair, and I like to think it ends at a point of hope. And that despair came from this feeling that I had become complicit in my own destruction. That is, like the things I bought and the things I did were taking away my freedom and making my world worse. Uh, as just one example, I was uh, opposed to the war in Iraq. I was marching in D.C., I was marching in New York City, and then at the end of the year I would pay my income tax, and I knew that I was financing the war. Um, through the real estate collapse, I felt like I had personally been scammed in the sense that I bought the inflated price house and then I was underwater. And through not my own fault, I had done everything according to the rules, I was suddenly impoverished by this turn of events. And as angry as I was at the banks and at Wall Street and at the 1%, once a month I wrote my mortgage check to Bank of America. And I thought, wow, I'm their best customer, even though I like to think that I'm opposed to them. And I feel this way often about the fuel industry. You know, you might be upset what ExxonMobil is doing, but every item you touch seems to either be made out of petroleum products or delivered by them. So I felt that I was sort of trapped in this cycle I couldn't break out of. And... I wanted to get out of it. So, um, and at the same time, well, I, guess I should say, the first thing I did to try to break this was, um, many years ago I went to work for the Howard Dean campaign, and this was the anti-war candidate. And I spent 14 hours a day looking at a computer to stop the war. And uh, at the end of the day, I usually felt terrible. And at the end of the campaign... I felt like I hadn't been out of a cubicle for six months, and we lost, and we didn't end the war, and we didn't defeat George Bush, and I thought, have I actually achieved anything here? Um, I remember when I was in the, the office, I would covertly look at the page of the like uh, yoga studio, because I thought I could sneak out of the office for an hour, and I didn't want anyone to know, because I didn't want them to think I wasn't committed enough to the cause that I was going to take a break. Anyway... 
Um, the first person I met who I felt I could broken this cycle was Daniel Suelo, who I wrote my previous book about the man who quit money, lived in a cave, didn't use money for 16 years. And he had done it. And I brought him on my book tour. We went dumpster diving and, and couch surfing across America together. We came to this very store. And people asked him, um, what can I do? They said, I'm really inspired by how you live, but I'm not going to go live in a cave. I have kids. How could I possibly change my life? And in a sense, this was the question that drove this, the unsettlers. As I went out looking for families that were living radically and resisting and not being a part of the system that was destroying us. And I thought at first that this book was going to be about off-grid dropouts. Because maybe back in the 70s, if you were off the grid, you were sticking it to the man because you weren't paying electrical bills and you weren't using that electricity. And that was great. But... Nowadays, with the technology we have, you can literally be in your off-grid castle trading stocks on Wall Street via cell modem, which is to say you can reap the benefits of the mainstream economy and not see any of its consequences. So some of these off-grid commuters are like a suburbanite with a very long driveway, and they might not actually be doing the descent that they would like to be. And so I wondered, how far would you have to go? to get out of that economic grid. And so the first family I contacted, or that I should say that I profiled in the book, they uh, took it this far. They don't use cars. They don't use airplanes. They don't use any electricity, not even solar. They don't use any petroleum products. They grow most of their own food, so they don't use the Internet. They don't use cell phones. And uh, ironically, I found them by posting on Facebook I was like, who knows someone living off the grid with kids? And I was led to them through a series of contacts, got their landline, called them, and they were out in La Plata, Missouri, a very small town, uh, where they had bought an Amish farm and formed an intentional community uh, called the Possibility Alliance. And within this community, they were not using all of those things I mentioned, but they were also practicing... Gandhian-style uh, direct action. So they were training their members and their guests, and they were sending them out on bicycles sometimes to protest at the fracking site or at the uh, nuclear bomb factory in Kansas City. And they were getting arrested. So on the one hand, they seemed like they had cut themselves free from the grid, but they were also incredibly engaged politically. And it was pretty inspiring to see them. And they had two daughters, and they seemed to have escaped a lot of the, uh, uh, not just the ethical concerns, but also they seemed to be having a lot of fun. You know, they weren't stuck in traffic. They weren't checking their phone. Their kids weren't playing video games at the dinner table and so on. And uh, it was beautiful to watch and very inspiring to me. Um, so that's family one. That's a third of this book. And uh, the second family came from a belief, or I should say a mistaken belief, that this book was going to be about preppers. So I was interested in uh, you know, people who were thinking that the collapse was imminent, economic, ecological collapse was imminent. And those folks turned out, in my mind, to be 
pretty based on fear. And they had this fear that the cities were going to be, uh, there was going to be riots, and there was going to be a breakdown of law and order, and there was going to be um, ecological catastrophe, and there would be economic collapse. And as I read their blogs and read their books, I thought, you know, this is actually already happened, this collapse. It's happening now. It's not something that's in the future. It's happened in New Orleans. It's happened in Detroit. And the victims of this collapse were not middle-class white people with permaculture degrees. They were almost entirely poor people of color who did not do anything to cause these collapses, right? And yet they were the ones who were being resourceful enough and innovative enough to respond. So that sent me to Detroit. And as I was, I flew into Detroit and I'd called a bunch of folks who were doing urban farming and homesteads and they did not ever call me back. So I started just kind of cold calling some of these farms and I met this woman named Olivia who, uh, she was at that point, I think she was 28. She's African American, she's from Detroit. Um, had gotten out of Detroit by doing everything right, but came back to Detroit because she loved it. She thought that the world's problems were needed her attention. She got her dream job as a horticulturalist at the Conservancy, and then the city went bankrupt, and it all fell apart, at which point she started farming. So she and her husband are now making a living growing food on vacant lots in Detroit, and they don't get any government subsidies. They don't get any... Uh, academic or foundation funding. They have a very strong, I guess you'd call it libertarian streak, even though they're in a, they're not out in their sticks like you might expect a, a libertarian to be. Um, so that's family number two. And they're at a place called Brother Nature Produce in Detroit. Um, they have a daughter who's about three now. And as I finished my time with them, my skeptical nature was asking the question, well, what are they going to do when their kids get older and their kids need braces and want to go to the prom and want to have a car and want to play video games and want to go to college? And you, you know, can you pursue this vision and not deprive your kids of, of the opportunities that America has to offer? And... That led me to my third family, which was just down the road from me in Missoula, Montana, which is where I was living at the time. And uh, these folks had been farming since the early 80s on an organic farm, and they lived in a teepee for about 10 years through the Montana winters. And they were farming organically before that word had come into existence. This was called biodynamic back then, and it was kind of a culty, spiritual calling. Um, anyway... Uh, after their kid was home birthed in the teepee, um, they had another, and so they decided to build a house, so they did. And 35 years later, they have managed to really stay true to their vision um, without uh, compromising, but at the same time, they've achieved kind of the American dream in terms of they own 80 acres, they have a house, they have a car, their kids are in college, uh, one of them is still in high school. And uh, the dilemma that was facing them during the year or two that I was uh, interviewing them was that they had a... Their oldest son had moved to New York City and decided to go to art school. 
and it was going to cost $50,000 a year, which happened to be their salary as on the farm. And they had to decide, you know, what's, what does $50,000 mean to us? What does our kids' dream mean to us versus our vision of ethical money spending and ethical farming? So, I won't tell you how that was resolved, but uh, <laughs> those are the three families. And um, I am now going to read from the introduction of the book, which should take about, like I said, I don't know, 12 or 15 minutes. And um, then I'd uh, love to talk to you guys about what you think. So, this search, this search for the good life for people who had broken out of this cycle. The search really began at the fried chicken case in the deli aisle of a supermarket across a shadeless avenue from a Taco John's drive-thru and a B-grade big box called ShopGo. The hot, bland haze could have been anywhere in America, but it happened to be on the outskirts of Missoula, Montana, where I had stopped on my way home to pick a brick of butter. As I clicked down the cool aisles, I was hungry. I steered the cart into the zone devoted to natural foods. With organic this and artisanal that, including butter coaxed from cows, presumably allowed to lay in the bed with their master and stream Netflix, <laughs> the place provided a haven from the consumption bonanza that ruled on the rest of the floor. I perused the butter, each box bedecked with competing visions of pastoral harmony. Let me be clear, I feel bad about the state of the planet, and I'm willing to pay extra to support an actual farmer instead of the bovine gulag. My life had reached a turning point. At age 41, I was engaged to marry. I had vacated my house downtown and moved to my fiancé's ramshackle cottage on the banks of the Bitterroot River, where we grew vegetables and canned peach jam, and from our bed watched bald eagles nest in the cottonwoods. It felt like the natural conclusion to some journey. Six years earlier, I'd been living in a room in Brooklyn, hustling to connect paychecks, spending every cent on yoga and beer, <laughs> often in quick succession. <laughs> the yoga and beer made me feel bodiless, a state I had previously attained, paddling whitewater, descending canyons, skiing off mountaintops. But attaining that weightless sensation in the city required a crucial adjustment. I had to pay for it. I had begun to imagine myself as a money lung, an organ whose sole purpose was to inhale dollars, transform them into pleasure, then exhale a stream of carbon into the air, feces into the sewer, and plastic containers into the landfill. So I moved back west, hoping to live more simply, less tangled in money and artificial entertainment, more connect, connected to nature, people, and spirit. Or to put it in a single word that's embarrassing in these ironic times, I wanted my life to be authentic. I landed in Missoula, bought a small house whose payment I could afford, and met Cedar. In case it isn't obvious from the fact that she was named after a tree, <laughs> my wife was raised by hippies. Home-birthed in the barn in the northern wilds of Montana, then homeschooled and homeopathed, unvaccinated and uninsured. She and I could not banter about the corny sitcoms of our youth because she had never had television. 
She was raised a vegetarian and had never sampled a Big Mac or a leg of fried chicken. Cedar hailed from a separate America, and as I fell in love with her, I fell in love with it, too. Her rented shack abutted 20 acres of pasture where horses and coyotes frolicked. When the spring floods receded, we claimed a private sand beach for skinny dipping and sunbathing and sucking cold pink wine from the bottle. We harvested lettuce and arugula in June, peas and raspberries in July, onions and garlic in August, corn and tomatoes in September. We foraged morels along the river. We dined at ten, a herd of mule deer bedded in the pasture. We saw a fox out there. We were living in Arcadia and eating like aristocrats, and for rent, paid just $600. Yet our days there felt numbered. Even if the property came up for sale, it was beyond our means. Meanwhile, it was too small for both of us to work, which is why I kept an office in town, and which is why I was biking the seven miles dressed in a day-glow vest, spandex shorts, and shoes with clips on the soles, considering my commute a feat of athleticism and danger, despite the fact that Cedar had been pedaling this stretch for a decade in cowboy boots and a dress. (laughs) So, back in the grocery aisle. What lay ahead was a feast. Harvesting the vegetables, washing and chopping, concocting the sauce from scratch, and celebrating each phase with a clink of cold beer glasses. By dinner time, there would be puddles on the floor and dirt clods in the sink. But now, I hesitated, my hand hovering over the dairy case. For the first time in human history, the appetites of our species exceeded the resources of the planet. So we had come to equate consumption with morality. Buying one brand of butter was more ethical than buying the other. This was bizarre, but hadn't the agrarian philosopher Wendell Berry written, how could we divorce ourselves completely from the technologies and powers that are destroying our planet? The answer is not yet thinkable. So... I laid my hand on the gilded cube of righteous cream, but my frugal fingers refused to clutch it. Because here's where my pastoral fantasy ran aground. The pound of organic butter cost $6.50. And the ceiling for buying my way into a grace was about five bucks. So, I marched out of Health Haven toward Consumeria, a journey that bypassed the deli, deli counter where a whiff of newly fried chicken stopped me in my tracks. Oh, I love fried chicken. I soldiered on through the gauntlet of pink frosted cookies by the baker's dozen where I gaped at my fellow Americans piloting barges with logs of ground beef and pallets of frozen pizza suitcases of Mountain Dew and pillowcases of Doritos all of which they would winch into tanks that cost more than my yearly income and could barely cross the street on a gallon of gas finally I arrived at the pulsing cold vaults of conventional cream three bucks a box but as I perused the ingredients and noted their place of origin I balked, spun and retreated toward the organic nook suddenly faint with hunger in my fluorescent vest, 
drawn like Odysseus to the siren song of the battered breast. Now, I did not grow up eating junk. No Cokes, Cap'n Crunch. But neither did we eat what back then was known as health food. We ate spaghetti with ragu sauce. Born in the Great Depression and raised during the war, my parents remembered sugar rations and were frugal and moderate. But from my southern mother, I'd inherited a love of fried chicken. Not that my parents were going to fry it themselves. We went to the man who did chicken right, (laughs) Colonel Harlan Sanders, whose red and white striped Kentucky Fried Chicken kiosk on Sepulveda Boulevard remains what the shrinks might call my happy place. (laughs) And to this day, no memory evokes my childhood more fondly than beach picnics with a bucket of the kernel, cheery styrofoam bowls of gravied mashed potatoes, and a sporkful of slaw. Intoxicated with reverie, I found my feet carrying me to the deli case. Now, I know about chicken factories. I know about the lightless cages, the clipped beaks, the overhead drizzle of shit, the poison-laced corn and soy shoved down their gullets, the farmers bullied into serfdom. I know about hormones and preservatives, artificial flavors. I knew that I had built a life around better choices, and that one definition of adulthood was restraint. I also knew that my future held no more buckets of KFC. But between me and dinner lay another three miles of bike path and at least an hour of harvesting and chopping and cooking. Every meal required at least three saucepans, two skillets, battery of cutting boards, a quiver of knives, and a salad spinner. (laughs) The downside of garden-to-table gourmet is that to get the food from the garden to the table takes four fucking ever. (laughs) And who would be the one to do all those dishes, to shovel those dirt clods out of the sink? Me, that's who, doubled over the windowless galley, sweeping the pocked and curling linoleum with its black-burned ring where someone had oopsed a skillet. The floor the landlord wouldn't fix, and who could blame him considering how little we paid? My married friends had not warned me about this niggling sensation that despite how good life was, everything that irked me, the dirt clods in the sink, the cracks in the window pane, the price of butter, the gnawing in my belly, it would all make me feel confined. When I'd been single, it had been easier to maintain my illusions of possibility. There would always be another fling, I would never need money, I would never grow old, but now that I was engaged, I glimpsed the future. Monogamy, mortgage, parenting, paychecks, and then, after all those years of worry, death. (laughs) If I actually began to live within the limits of marriage, then I had to confront the limits of mortality. And this was some heavy shit for a honeymoon. Because no matter how good we have it, we always want more. More food, beer, car, life. And those deep desires were in conflict with the ideas I admired about simple living that sustained all life. I rushed to the checkout aisle, and as I reached for my wallet, a voice said, 
there's nothing wrong with the way you already live. You're an American. You don't have to change. Simple living was not so simple. What was simple was hot and ready Chester's fried thighs. When I emerged into the blistering parking lot, hidden like a tumor amid the health food in my pannier, was the white breast of some young friar, its dead heart pounding in a plastic sack. I leaned against my bike and tore the meat from its wrapper, gnashed at it with my fangs, the first bite gaining purchase only on skin, which I ripped off in a single sheet and huffed into my throat. In my youth, I'd messed around with hard drugs. And let me tell you, none hits the blood as hot and sweet as whatever it is they inject into fried chicken these days. (laughs) Explosions of salt fat ricocheted in my skull. My eyes rolled into their sockets of grease. And with my free hand, I steadied myself on the saddle. When I'd peeled away the meat with my teeth, I chewed the tiny bones and spit the pulp into the plastic. Only then did I slide the provided mini-wipe from its sealed envelope. It's lemony bouquet taking me back to a picnic circa 1978. I wiped my lips and then my cheeks, my nose, my forehead. I scrubbed each finger. Domesticity would require compromise and restraint. It would also require, now and then, some (laughs) cover-ups. Would my fiancé judge me harshly for my meat snack? I did not want to find out. I stuffed the soiled tissue into the bone bag, dropped the whole mess into the bin. I mounted my bicycle, newly fortified, and lit out all carbon neutral for the edge of civilization for the simple life. All right. Thank you all. Um, so that is where uh, the book starts and then I go out and I spend about 100 pages with each of these three families that I mentioned I'm wondering if uh, anyone has any questions or comments or suggestions (laughs) yeah earlier when you were talking about the first family and you were saying that they um, engage in Mm -hmm. uh, protests and things like that how do they know about it if they don't have like access to the news and stuff. Right, I mean, they just get the get news magazines, so they're maybe a week beyond or behind everyone else, and they have a landline, so people call them and tell them what's going on. But yeah, they. Um, it is interesting, though, because nowadays we think we need to get new news every five or ten minutes, and they get it once a week, and they feel pretty informed. Right, they don't use uh, computers, internet, cell phones, they don't use any electricity at all. So how do they decide, because a land phone is, you know, a modern contraption, how do they decide where to draw these lines? Mm. It's a good question, I mean, and it's kind of arbitrary. I mean, the, a landline uses a very tiny amount of electricity, but the telephone company pays the bill instead of the person on the other end, right? Like, you don't have to have your landline plugged into electrical outlet. It just works. So they do concede that that does use a tiny amount of electricity, but since it's not... I mean, their house is not wired for electricity. I think the one concession they make, since they don't use cars, 
and they ride bicycles everywhere is they do, they do use like flashlight headlamps so they don't get run over by a car but um, and basically Ethan who's the founder he says I don't want my comfort my mobility and my freedom to depend on polluting exploiting and killing then that he tries to arrange everything according to that <laughs> yes uh, what's your view on living in a city and trying to embody those values? Yeah, in case you didn't hear, the, what's, what's your view on living in the city and trying to embody those values? Well, um, having spent a lot of time with my research in Detroit, I think it's really exciting, and I think it's the way, the way to do it. I mean, I think a lot of people get excited for the photogenic side of like going out to the country, having some land, having some animals... Um, building their own house, which can be really cool. But by living outside of the city, you become so much more dependent on your car, so you probably offset a lot of the um, gains you're making. And you also just become isolated, and you want to drive 50 miles to go into town to see your friends. And I think that people who are doing this kind of thing in cities right now are in some ways far more effective because in cities you already have uh, infrastructure, you have public transportation, you don't have to have a car and um, you can do great things and you have access to power in the sense of if you need to be protesting. Um, Of course the problem with this city is it's so expensive and so um, when like young, when people ask me, well, what should I do? I tell them like, if you want to live a very low impact, intentional life, why not move to the big one of these big Rust Belt cities or Midwestern cities where it's super cheap and it's been kind of abandoned because there's so much uh, unused potential there. So I, I, in that short answer is that I don't think you have to go live off the land to live a low impact and intentional life of resistance by any means. Yeah. Rob. Hi. Um, what about water and water use? <coughs> I mean, you could argue there's similarities between water and electricity use in terms of yeah. cost and that type of thing, but do they all have their own wells? Is that how they operate? Uh, in Detroit, they, they water their... Uh, farm by hooking up to the uh, fire hydrant at night so they won't get busted. (laughs) Um, The Possibility Alliance, they actually are hooked into county water. That's one of their few things they have to pay for. And that's because it was already plumbed that way. Um, But they have a backup system. Um, I mean, for the most part, like, water is renewable whereas fossil fuels are not. So water will eventually end up back in the ocean and getting uh, evaporated and raining down on us again, whereas fossil fuels, once you use them, they're never back again. So You could argue you know, solar is that way, too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and solar is, is great, of course. And uh, I should just say, like, with the Possibility Alliance, half of what they want to do is to boycott industries that they think are violent 
unethical. But the other half, half is they love to do things with their hands. They love to do things the old-fashioned way, to build their own furniture, build their own houses, cut down trees with, with, with saws, and, and haul the logs by horses back to their, where they're building or where they're making firewood. So they decided not to get solar panels, even though that would probably be within their ethics. They were drawn to like that kind of Amish idea of the value and the meaning that comes by doing work that has tangible benefits. So it's not entirely about you know, carbon footprint and fossil fuels. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I uh, come from a family that initially was a get off the grid type situation, and then uh, when my parents got divorced, my single mom wanted to get back on the grid as fast as possible um, because it was so hard to be isolated and do all of that herself. And um, in reading this, and in, you know, kind of inheriting those values, you know, like I have to, I'm the one with the tumbler compost. But it's in my backyard and eating out whatever I can. Right. south-facing garden. Um, but um, what's interesting, and especially with the first family, you know, who I like to me are almost like pretty extreme. Mm-hmm. But, um, but they choose to have kids. And I mean, you could argue that one of the most impactful decisions that you can make is to bring another human in the world, especially like you can raise them however you want, but as soon as they leave, like, they <laughs> decide that they want a Ferrari and you know what I mean? Right, you yeah. Can't, you can't control that. And so for, and you can like get a little hopeless about that when you really want, you know, you, could, you care so much. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for me, it's been really interesting to like, to look at those decisions as like the, the compromise, like the gray area. Yeah. You know, like what, what are you willing to, to compromise on? You know, like, do you have kids because that is, you know, a meaningful life to you? And, um, but you do all of these other things to try and, you know, not um, be part of the problem. Yeah. And, um, I don't know, I guess that's what I really found interesting is, is seeing in your examples that gray area and how people choose to you know, I guess compromise and kind of walk that line. Yeah, I think there's definitely ways of being more, actually, like you say, having less impact, and that would be not having kids. And But I really was specifically choosing people in this who had basically a blueprint or a model for something that I might do, because my wife and I... We'll probably have kids, and like I was, it became very personal to me. Like, how would I do this? And um, there's a, a fascinating um, bit from Gary Snyder that I found. Gary Snyder, the poet, and he says that in the past the um, monastics would live like this, and they would basically make a deal with the state, which was that we won't reproduce. So we're going to like resist the state in every way. We're not going to go to war. We're not going to pay taxes. We're going to live in our monasteries. Um, we're not going to contribute to the economy, but we're not going to have kids, so we're going we're to die out, basically, and the government will therefore leave us alone. And Snyder says, but what if the monastic type people did have children and they created a tribe that got bigger and more powerful? That would really be a threat to the, to the existing order. And I kind of saw these families as doing that, <laughs> creating their foot soldiers who might end up getting a Ferrari or might not. <laughs> Thank you.
Yes, Barbara. Okay. I'm interested in knowing how the Possibility Alliance is organized. Uh, how many people, how long are they in uh, a community, and how do they establish sort of rules of, of living? Yeah, they am. Um, well, this is the sort of paradoxical part is they have 1,500 visitors per year who come and take free classes on nonviolent resistance, on permaculture, on organic farming, on conflict resolution. Um, but after eight years, they've only had one or two people join permanently. And it's partially because the comp- the you have to give away all of your money to someone. You, know, you don't give it to the community. But everyone joins, basically, like joining a monastery. You pay off your debts, you get rid of your money, and then you join, and you hope that this community will take care of you. It's basically a consensus model, but the founders are so rigid and so opinionated about how this should be because they are built this based on a Gandhian community that there's not necessarily a whole lot of room for um, changing their vision. So they do run into some conflict like that. Um, I tell you, I am going to be here. I'm going to stay here and answer as many questions as you want. But um, why don't we just take one more, and then um, I'll be free to answer questions and or sign books up here. Does anyone have one more question before we break up? Yes, Tristine. Did you find a dark side to their kind of purity? <laughs> yeah. Did I find a dark side to their purity? Uh, yes, in all three of them in different ways. Um, the dark side with the Possibility Alliance was, I think, that um, Ethan could be very pushy. And if someone said, you know, I've done this, you know, I, I've, I've stopped using a car then he might say, well, next, let's do this. Like, he was always pushing people to go farther, and he, and he ended up pushing them away from him. And, um, and then as a result, he felt isolated. He's like, we've got this great thing going. Why can't anyone, why won't people join us? But uh, it wasn't dark in the sense of a lot of cults or communes where someone is being really manipulative or abusive. But um, he does suffer from or struggle with that, the idea that, no one else wants to join him. Um, Detroit, uh, you know, the, those people are pretty uh, charming in every way. But they, you know, they have their guns and they're ready to defend themselves. They're not exactly like touchy feely liberals, like having a, a hand holding circle in Detroit. They're 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 pretty tough. And um, and then lastly, I think that with that last family, they're sort of stubbornness or commitment to their ideals did create this problem where their son wanted uh, their, them to pay this tuition and they didn't want to do it and that was a, a conflict. Yeah. All right, you all. Thank you so much for being here. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.